The reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for uh, this, this great day to be together. God, as your uh, children, making much of our good King and Heavenly Father. And that, Lord, I thank you that because, Lord Jesus, you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied yourself, took the form of a servant in the likeness of man, Thank you that you became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I thank you that because of that glorious truth, God, that we know not just intellectually, but with every uh, fiber of our being, that it is well with our soul. God, it is well with our soul because of who you are. And that we serve a God who is not dead, but who is reigning and ruling, who is completing his work in each one of his children, and who is completing his mission through each one of his children, us. And God, I just, uh, I pray for your kindness and your grace this morning that uh, you would help me um, articulate um, this section of your holy and life-giving word in a way that you uh, meant it to be proclaimed. God, I thank you for um, this letter that you inspired Paul to write to the Philippians. And I thank you, God, that that your word is timeless, that it is for us every every bit as much as it was for the Philippians over 2,000 years ago. So, God, we hang on to the promise that your word does not return void. And I pray, God, that you would... um, Just encourage us, instruct us, that we would leave here with just uh, more hope than we came in with, knowing that we've got a ruling and reigning God who is working in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. We love you. We thank you that you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Amen. Good morning. Happy Memorial Day. This man-made... Uh, weekend that we rejoice in, really. It's uh, 
it's a great privilege to live in this country, and, and um, there's been men and women that have laid their lives down for, um, so that we can enjoy some freedoms that we're not entitled to, but we get to enjoy in this country. My prayer today and this Memorial Day weekend is that we would uh, be reminded and we would remember in new and fresh ways what Christ has done for us, who we are in Christ, and what he's called us to do. Um, and you know, I was, uh, as I was thinking about this passage, this passage, um, this section of scripture, this sermon I've titled, um, Work Out What God Has Already Worked Into You. Work out what he has already worked into you. And I, and I, and I reflected on my own life, what, what has been worked into me, um, not as a Christian, but just as, as common grace, as a man, that, that I'm, a, I'm a product of what has been worked into me through um, DNA that has gone through um, the decades, the centuries. Um, I'm a product of what has been worked into me by example. Other people have been example to me. I'm a product of what has been worked into me by um, training. People have trained me. And then also my own experiences, that we're all a product of those things. Many of these things have been worked into me over the years that shape who I am for better or for worse. These are things that I really had no say in. My intellect. If I had something to say about that, I'd be more intelligent. My athletic ability, I had no uh, say in that. My musical ability, I definitely had nothing to say about that because there's nothing there. Um, the, the way I walk is a result of what has been uh, worked into me through DNA, my height, my metabolism, etc. cetera. And with, with all that God has um, given me and given you, um, there's, there's a big part of me that wants to be a better version of myself. I want to actually maximize what has been um, worked into me by working out um, who I am. I believe all of this to be true, that it's good to actually maximize um, these traits that God has given each of us. As Christians, we believe that God has worked our salvation into us, that we are saved by grace. That he has worked our salvation into us. We are new creations with a new direction. And God tells us that on this side of salvation, he encourages us, instructs us, he appeals to us, he commands to us that we are to live in accordance to his will, his written will first and foremost. But also follow the, the promptings and the directions that that he sends us on, that we're, we're all prompted. There's a, there's a direction that we're all supposed to go. The problem is, if you are like me, and I know you are, I like to ask the question, why, all too often. Like, reading, reading God's word, and, um, you know, you are to forgive as I have forgiven. You are to humble yourself and confess your sins. Like, Lord, I don't feel like it. Why do you want me to do that? I respond, why too often? If I, was, um, if I was a construction guy, I know a few of you are construction guys, and I had to like, manage a project, and there were um, uh, code people involved that you had to build according to code, um, somebody would die. Because I, I don't know how you do it, John. I mean, like, there, I mean, for me, everything should have an answer. There should have a why behind it. Like, why can't we um, put this toilet here instead of here because the code says it's got to be down there? Like, why? Well, because it says it right here. I want to actually know the practical ramifications as to um, why something, why I'm supposed to act or obey in a certain way. Let me, and if somebody tells me the, how, the why, I'm going to ask how. How do you do that? 
I, I, it's one thing knowing the why, but you've got to know the, the how. Let me illustrate this in a, in a way that I think most of you will resonate with. A lot of you have small children. Many of you have teenage children. And then others of you had small children or teenage children once upon a time. All of you know how children at a, around the age of two or three began, began to respond to everything. When we tell the, our kids to do something, sadly, in many cases, it even extends into their teen years. We give them a command or we tell them to do something and they respond with a simple word, why? About six people in the last service blurted out, they say, no. <laughs> and I'm hoping the why comes before the no. Here's some examples in our home over the years when our kids were smaller. Honey. Please finish your dinner. Why? Sweetheart, don't shoot pop bottle rockets at your sister. Why? I told you a hundred times not to put that Barbie in the toilet. Why? And all too often, by now some somewhat exasperated parents, we answer them by saying, because I said so, don't make me come back there. Because I said so. And at the end of the day, that's not, it feels good. It's like the easiest way to go, but it's not the most helpful thing to say to our kids. It exasperates them. Sometimes they need to hear it, I think. What we need to understand is that God is not doing what we do to our kids here in Philippians. God doesn't just, um, when he tells us to do something and we ask the question why, he tells us. That, that all of his commands and everything that he asks us to do are actually for our blessing. They're not to constrain us. They're not to make us unhappy. They're to bless us, which means to make us happy. So when we, when God asks us to do something, and we ask why, he doesn't respond with an authoritative, because I said so, just do it. He answers the why. God always gives us an answer. And most of the time the answers are found in his word. And then he doesn't stop there. Because if he just gave us the why, without giving us the will to want to do it, and the power to accomplish it, that's exasperation. That's a tyrant, actually. And God not only gives us the why, but he gives us the will, the want to, and the power to do it. So as we look at our passage today, we're going we're to unpack this a little bit further. Paul says in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Therefore, when you see the word therefore, it means at least at some degree that what is about to be said is based upon what has preceded this passage. What is about to be said is based upon what has preceded this passage. When we see the word therefore, we've got to ask the question what? What is it there for? What is it there for? What this simple word means is that everything Paul is going to say in Philippians 2, today's chapter, today's passage, 12 through 18, flows out of or further explains what he has already said 
in the preceding verses that actually start in chapter 1, verse 27. So the therefore goes all the way back, the best I can tell in my study, back to chapter 1, verse 27. And in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, verse 27, Paul said this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, if you missed that message, Pastor Chris preached it and did a wonderful job on it. So I'm not going to unpack that in, um, in detail, but let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. But what Paul's talking about is obeying God. The, this word worthy points to the standard or measure or criterion, if you will, to which our lives are expected to conform. The world says that we should embrace a radical and independent freedom in which you can do whatever you want with re, without regard to anyone or anything else aside from your own fleshly desires. That's what the, that's what the world says. But that's not what God says. That's not what God wants or what he says in his word. Our manner of life is not to give ourselves to sinful self-indulgence, but to a lifestyle that what? Pleases God. That pleases God, uh, edifies the church, and maximizes mission. But hear this. Don't, Don't lose sight of this. When Paul speaks of living a life worthy of the gospel, he's not saying that we become worthy of being saved by behaving in a certain way. We are to live in a way that is, what he says, we're to live in a way that is befitting the grace of God already shown to us. We're to live a life that is appropriate to what we have received by faith alone. So let's, so verse 127, Paul says, live, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Uh, Today's passage is that Paul is going to tell us to obey. And he's going to tell us that, he's going to say that I've given you everything you need to obey. And obedience pleases me. But in the verses between um, 127 and today's verse, um, these verses instruct the church on how to live in community with one another. Paul said in verse, chapter 1, verse 27, that their men of life would be worthy of the gospel. Then he says after that, he says that your, he says, here's how it's worked out, that your love may abound more and more, that you would be pure and blameless, that you would stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And Pastor John worked a lot of this out two weeks ago in an excellent message. I'd encourage you, if you haven't heard it, to go back, to suffer for the gospel, be of the same mind and save love as Christ, be in full accord with one mind, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, humbly count, your, count others more important than yourself, look out for the interests of others, not just yourself. And then last week we saw that he put Christ out there as an example on how to live. Christ is our ultimate example. And we saw that Jesus put aside all of his rights and all of his privileges of being God for the sake of you and I. He emptied himself. His aim was to serve hopeless and helpless humanity by becoming human and laying his life down for you and I. His ultimate aim in dying was for the salvation of sinners. And he never tried to vindicate himself. Even though he suffered unjustly, because he knew that God the Father would one day vindicate him. Now Paul gives the church in today's passage further instruction on what it means to live our collective lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you right up front that the gospel is not opposed to what? Anybody remember? Working. The gospel is opposed to earning. We can't earn our salvation, but we're told all over Scripture to work out our salvation. Today, we're going to see Paul appeal to the church in Philippi and to you and I today to continue to work out what God has providentially worked into you. 
to work out, to live out who you already are in Christ. So here, here we are in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, now, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We see clearly that all that Paul asked the church to do in living lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've always done it. He says, as you have always obeyed, he's not hammering them here. He's actually encouraging them that in his presence, they have always obeyed. Now he's encouraging them that I'm going to be gone. He says, even more in my absence, obey. I think it's important to look at this, and I'm not 100% sure this is right in my study, and it's confirmed by a few commentaries, that when when Paul says that, uh, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only my presence, we've got to ask the question, question, what does Paul's presence refer to? And I think what it refers to is that Paul being with them in this life, because Paul is not with them as he's writing this letter. He's in Rome in prison, and they're, they're in Philippi. And there's a, there's, a, there's a certain comfort that we draw from others, whether they're with us in this body or people that we know that, that encourage us, that equip us, that pray for us. And I think what, what Paul is saying here is that there's a possibility that the church in Philippi has become dependent upon Paul for their growth. They're dependent upon Paul for their growth. As you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. They are potentially more dependent on him than they are on the Lord. Paul is saying in a roundabout way, my dear friends, you have always obeyed in my presence. Now in my absence, keep on obeying. He then describes obedience as working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's explaining really what obedience is. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I know a lot of you are going to want to. So I'll just read what one commentator said about what it means to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This phrase then, from this commentary, says, first of all, reminds the Philippians of the grandeur of the final words in verses 9 through 11, where Paul says that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He reminds them of, of that God is reigning and one day everybody will have to give an account. If the whole universe of created beings is someday to bow their knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord, then they themselves need to be getting on with obedience. And One of the primary steps of obedience that Paul is calling us to is to live our lives on mission. If one day, and they believe that the day was coming sooner rather than later, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, Paul is saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Trembling. One does not live out the gospel, back to the commentary, one does not live out the gospel casually or lightly, but as one who knows what it means to stand in awe of the living God. On the other hand, and don't miss this, nothing of failure or lack of confidence is implied here. What Paul is saying is that, hey, you know, every day you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling to make sure that you're the Lord's. That is, that's, con- that's constraining. Yes, we do need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the Lord, but it's not, a, it's not an every day, every minute, every time we blow it, God, am I yours, that I lose my salvation? Because we know that you can't lose your salvation. The gospel is, a good, is God's thing, and the God who saved his people is an awesome God. Obedience is required. 
We're to live out our salvation with fear and trembling. Obedience is required, but it's not a condition of salvation. Gordon Fee said this, salvation is not something we receive. It's not only something we receive, it's something we do. It's something we live out. Paul said this to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. A lot of people want to put a a, a period into paragraph and go home right there. That's a glorious truth in its own. But he says, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. Other people want to just stop it right there. But what do we say to that? How do we respond to that? We are his workmanship created in Jesus for good works. What are good works? The best works are living in obedience to Christ and his word. You want to know what good works are? It's, it's doing what God has called you to do. And it says, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. And Paul says, church of Philippi, you've done this. In my presence, you have obeyed. Praise be to Jesus. Now continue to work out your salvation in my absence. And I was thinking of a couple of people that, um, that, have, that have come to mind. One is this, this gal that Nancy and I have been ministering to that got hit by um, a semi-truck. That We love this gal. And if you're listening, young lady, I love you. Jesus loves you. But she, um, and I don't know what, I, I believe she's the Lord's. I believe she's the Lord's. But she, um, she, she'll grow, she'll grow, she'll grow when there's people pouring into her. When there's a pastor to encourage her. Or there's a woman to take her through a Bible study. But then when she, she goes out on her own, she, she, she tailspins. It's because she relies on the people rather than relying on God and his word. Now, we need the people. We are the church and we need each other. Transformation is by the spirit of God through the word of God in the context of the people of God. But we're never to be dependent on one another. We're to depend upon only upon Christ, his spirit, and his word. Some of you young people, teenagers in here, um, maybe you're at college or you're going off to college. I mean, many kids, when they, when they leave the house, um, their faith either um, blooms or it dies. And it's a test, actually. And it's a, and it's a great um, encouragement and reminder to us as parents that um, we don't want, we want our kids to be self-feeders, we want them to know that they have a loving God and a spirit that indwells them, and we're neither. Um, so we're, we're to uh, raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but don't let them become overly dependent upon you. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling does not refer primarily to the salvation of individual believers, but to the working out of our salvation in community. Well, you go, what does that mean? How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling in community? Well, Last time I looked, I mean, the more time you spend with people, the more, you know, you see their flaws. And the more, more you will see my flaws, I guarantee you that. And working out our salvation that, that God has reconciled us to himself individually, and he's given us each a ministry of reconciliation. So one of the ways that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling in community together is we forgive one another. We confess our sins to one another. In the home, one of the ways that we live it out is we love our wives as Christ loved the church. We... Um, Love our husbands, respect our husbands. We raise our kids up in the fear and admission of the Lord. That's working out our salvation with fear and trembling. When, when God says, um, says, do this, we try to do what he asked. 
In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul encouraged the church by saying, I'm sure of this. Right out of the gate, he says, I'm sure of this. Church, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? Will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. And what he's saying there is, if you are the Lord's, if his spirit indwells you, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. I'm sure of this, that the work that he began in you, what? He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. Now Paul tells them in verse 13 that God continues to work in them. He didn't just give them a, a, an encouragement up front that, that I'm sure this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion just to, just to encourage them. Hey, you know, I hope you feel encouraged. It's a reality. And he talks about this reality in verse 13. For it is God who works in you or among you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is saying, even though I may not be around forever to cheer you on, to teach you, to encourage you, God will enable you to live out these commands with joy. He will enable you. You see, our obedience actually, it ultimately, actually and ultimately brings pleasure to God. Um, we talk about worship a lot. Um, one of the things that I know Chris, Chris and I are on the same page on this is that we don't like to refer to music on Sunday morning as worship, like who's leading worship this morning. What's that mean? It's worship music. Um, this is a worship sermon, hopefully. Oh, when we give, we worship. When we serve, we worship. When we obey, we worship. Romans 12:1 says this. Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What Paul is saying is that, that all the mercy that God has given you, who you are in Christ, everything he's done for you, I appeal to that. I don't command you, Paul says, but I appeal to that that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. To please God is to obey God. And God has given us everything we need to please Him. That'd be a tyrant if He tells us to please Him. And we don't have the resources to do it. But we do. We do. It pleases God to help you please Him. It pleases God to help you please Him. God works in humans, you and I, producing the desire to fulfill His will, and He gives us the power to achieve it. Anything He asks you to do, anything, He'll give you the will and the power to do it. And I want to encourage you that anything He asks you to do is going to bring you freedom and blessing. That's why he gives us commands. None of this stuff in here saves us other than our faith. But on this side of salvation, when we um, submit ourselves to his good and glorious commands, that's where ultimate happiness is and fulfillment. I was thinking of my wife, actually, in when our kids were younger. When our kids would, like, mess up, you know, I'm the one that said, stop it! Stop it! Why, Dad? Because I said so. But, Dad, give me a reason. I'm going to come back there in a minute. My wife, she would, she operated as Jesus would operate. The way I picture him with us is that she would go, Honey, stop hitting your sister with a brick. Why, Why Mommy? Because you're breaking his head open. 
I'd like you to stop doing that because it dishonors the Lord. Here, Mommy, here's the brick. I'm sitting over there, give me that brick. <laughs> Another example would be that she would have them clean up their room. I wanted them to clean their room when they were three months old. It didn't happen. <laughs> three, four, five years old, pick up your stuff, clean your room. She's a big bed maker. Makes her bed to this day. Drives me nuts. I'm like, I'm going to mess it up again, so what, you just stop making it. I do appreciate it. But she would, she would ask little, little Mitch or little Joey or Natalie to, to do something. And if they didn't know how to do it, she wouldn't just tell them to figure it out. She would, she would actually get down there with them, tell them to do it. And then she'd get down there with them, and she'd help them. And she'd sing a happy, clappy song about picking up toys or something. And I feel like that's what... God does with us. Then whenever he tells us to do something, he's, he's going to give us the will, the want to. And he's going to give us the power to do it. He'll never tell us, tell you to do something that he won't equip you to do. He always gives you the why along the way and the will and the ability to do what he asks. And I want to encourage you, don't let your circumstances or people dictate your obedience. The one who reigns in you is at work in you and is at work in the church. You know, there's some mystery between human responsibility and God's providence, providence his, his sovereignty. I don't totally understand it, how they work together, but both I know are indeed true. Both truths are clearly stated here in this passage and many other passages. The word connecting them for in verse 13, is telling since it speaks to the motivation of our work or the implication of God's work. God's ongoing gracious work must not lead to laziness. It must not lead to indifference. It must not lead to passivity. But it must lead to an awe-filled longing and striving to see salvation worked out more broadly and deeply in the body of Christ in our own lives. So, so what does it look like to, to live this way? I mean, if, if, God is, if it says that God is um, um, willing and working in you for his good pleasure, and at the same time we're to obey, what does that even look like? For me, that's hard to, to, to reconcile at times. And I think what we end, if we don't understand it right, we end up um, laboring really hard. He says his yoke is easy. And I think it comes through yielding and abiding. Abiding, John 15, just read that, read that chapter when you get a chance. Is that He says, uh, abide in me. It means be, you know, connect yourself to the vine where there's life and where there's power. And we abide in him by, through prayer and through um, time in the word, undistracted. Yielding is another way where we work. And here's, um, God is always at work. He's, he's in us and he wants to will uh, give us the desire and the power to do it, but how do we do that? I picture myself, I've told this story before, it's, a, it's the best analogy, it works for me, I hope it works for you at some level, but I picture myself on a boat on the sea of life. It's a sailboat. It's got mass, it's got big mass, it's got big sails that go with it, but, but this, my sails are usually down underneath, under last week's lunch somewhere. And when God tells me to go somewhere, or, or I want to run from something, first thing I do is I pick up the oars. I work, I work, and I work. God, I'm coming, I'm coming. I'm going to work really hard to do this. But what he wants us to do is he wants us to simply surrender and submit to him. 
by raising the sails of surrender and submission. And it's such a great picture for me because, and I think for all of us, because we want to work and work and work. And the work is yielding. The work is submitting. The work is abiding. And it's good work. It's not laborious work. It's relational work. So I want to encourage you to do that work of raising your sails and let the Spirit of Christ fill them and give you the power to obey what He's asking you to do. And then after that, He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. (laughs) Okay, I'll obey. I've got to love my wife. I've got to be gentle with my kids. I've got to be honest in my workplace. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What are the all things Paul is describing here? It's it's simply simply obedience. It's obedience to whatever God calls us to. Everything God in His Word has instructed His children to do. It speaks to obedience. Without grumbling, without disputing, without arguing. And how do you do that? I was talking to a young man afterwards, um, or actually before this service, and it's like, um, I think he asked me how I was, and I said, man, I'm just, I'm just grateful. Yeah, I don't, I don't always live in that space, but I'm just grateful. And, I, and when we're thankful, it's hard to grumble and dispute. When we're thankful for who we are in Christ, um, it's, it's hard to find space to grumble. Um, we all got something to grumble about. But when we see the big picture, we should move to a heart of thankfulness. Because I think thankfulness actually leads to obedience. In this passage here, it's not, a, it's not a threat that one day we will be standing before God and, and we must be without a blame and we must be innocent. You know, see verse 15, if you read it in that vein, it says um, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation. You know, God, we're, we're going to sin. We should strive not to sin, but we are going to sin. The point is, we are already unblemished and without fault. We are already, if you go back, if you look at this very carefully in verse 15, it says that you may be blameless and innocent, comma, insert, you are children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That you are without fault. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, he has taken all of your fault upon himself. He's taken all of your sin and he has clothed you in his righteousness. That the Father sees you as without fault. And the point is, is that you and I, who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we are unblemished, so he's telling us here, live in a way that pleases God, who gives us everything we need to please him. You see, some of us are striving to live obedient lives because because you have to, or because someone told you, uh, is holding your feet to the fire, accountability. Accountability is not a bad thing. I need more accountability in my life. But that's not Paul's point here. He's saying, work out what God has already worked into you. Work out who you already are. Work it out. Work it out. Surrender, submit, abide. You are his children without blemish. And as a result of faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are his. So what? Now what? Live this way. Be blameless and innocent. Work out what God has already worked in. Be holy as God is holy. Live holy as you are already holy. Christians are his faultless children. 
That's the indicative. Therefore, live innocent and blameless lives in this crooked generation. This is, you might have fun with this, some of you, in Deuteronomy 32, actually uh, chapters 30, 32 and 33, I think. Um, Paul is playing off of that, I believe, with a twist. Moses spoke to the grumbling Israelites in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy and says that you're no longer God's children. You're no longer God's children. He says, but you rather you are blemished and you are part of a crooked and twisted generation. You see, the Israelites' pilgrimage in the wilderness was plagued by grumblings. It was plagued by dissensions rather than obedience. Paul's admonition recalls Moses' farewell charge, but with striking differences. Moses hammers the Israelites for being rebellious and being stubborn and doing what was, right, what, doing what was evil inside the Lord. Paul is encouraging the church that in his presence that they've, that they've been obedient. But he says, now even more. In my absence, be obedience. And then Paul says at the end of this verse 14 or 15, he says, I'm let me, I gotta read them together, sorry. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 14, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That's, our, that's us here today. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Who do you shine as lights in the world among? This twisted, this twisted generation. This lost and broken world. Matt, Jesus said something similar in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world, Christian. A city, church, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to, to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. What's your good works again? It's your obedience. It's serving other people. It's whatever God's called you to. It's an obedience to his word and what the spirit of God is leading to so that they could see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Isaiah said something similar in, in Isaiah 42. He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people, a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. Who wants to be a part of an organization? And if you just give me some freedom on this. It's not that the church is an organization. It's more of an organism. But who wants to be a part of an organization, a corporation that you're interviewing for, that all the, the people that are interviewing you, the other employees, are grumbling, they're disputing, and they want to do nothing that their boss tells them to do? Who wants to be a part of that? You see, us living in joyful unity, joyful obedience in unity with one another, that's our greatest witness. That's our greatest witness. And unity in serving one another in humility is not of this world. We shine brightest when the church is operating this way. It's attractive, actually. In the verse 16, Paul says, Hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Holding fast means both believing God and following God. Paul's saying be obedient in a different, different way. Hold fast to God. Don't just believe that Jesus is God, but follow him. And finally, in verse 17, Paul says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
This, this sacrificial image that Paul evokes was a common practice in both the pagan and the Jewish cultures. A priest would offer a sacrifice, an unblemished animal, and then later he would pour out a sacrificial libation to complement it. So Paul saw the Philippians as priests offering a sacrificial offering of their own faith. And Paul is, is showing a metaphor here, a picture that he's following their sacrifice by pouring his own libation over it. What is clear here is that he viewed his service as a complement or a contribution to their service. Paul is willing to do whatever it takes for the church in Philippi to live in joyful obedience to what God has called them to do. And church, we talk a lot about grace here, and we're going to talk about grace, God's grace, saved by grace and grace alone, who you are in Christ until Jesus comes back again. But we've got to talk about the therefores as well. It's all over Scripture. Therefore, live in a certain way. It pleases God. When we live in a certain way in accordance with God's commands, it pleases Him, it edifies the church, and it's our best witness. And it's interesting in verse 18, it says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And that contrasts what, they were, what he was saying earlier, don't grumble, don't argue. So I'll finish with this. God gives us both the will and the power to joyfully obey him. And he does it for his pleasure and for the good of his people and his mission. We get to slide into communion. And I can't think of a better Sunday to celebrate communion. I say that every time we do this, I'm sure. But this is Memorial Day weekend. And certainly we are thankful for the men and women that have laid down their lives so that we can have freedoms in this country. And we should uh, thank the Lord for them and others that, um, that are in the military and they might lay their lives down as well. But mostly, what we should be thankful for is the one who emptied himself. The one who left all of his privileges and rights in heaven and emptied himself. Took the form of a servant. Lived the perfect life we couldn't live. Died the death that we deserved. Rose again in victory and ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns and rules right now. And uh, last week, we looked at the great hymn, the great poem in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And I brought you to a place in John chapter 13 where Jesus, on the night of the Passover, the night of the Last Supper, where he actually dramatized for the disciples what it is that he came to do. And he washed their feet. He laid aside the outer garments. And he took a towel and he tied it around his waist that Jesus shed his rights and his privileges of being God. And he took the towel of a servant. And then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place, a picture of him being done with his work on earth and ascending to the right hand of the Father where he continues his work. So I want to, if you would just come up and take the elements, the, the, the bread and the, and the juice and go back to your seats and then I'll come back up and we'll take it together. But I want to encourage you, don't be in a hurry. Um, this is, um, I'd love to do this every week. I'd love to do this every day, actually. 
a reminder of what Christ has done and who we are in Christ. And as you're just contemplating before you come up here, ask him, God, where is it in me that you need to will and to work for your good pleasure? Thank you for saving me by grace. Thank you that there's nothing that I did. But God, how do you want to work out my salvation in me? Help me, Father, work out what you've already worked into me, okay? So just come up at your leisure and take, take the elements, and I'll come back up and we'll enjoy together. After he had washed the disciples' feet, they ate the feast, the Passover feast. Then afterwards, after the meal, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. At the same time, or same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant. Drink as often as you remember me. Father, thank you for uh, this great day to be together with these saints. Thank you, God, that you are uh, present with us. Um, Grateful, God, that you never leave us alone. Thankful for the body of Christ. God, thank you for um, that you didn't just save us individually um, to ourselves, but you saved us unto your body, that we're uh, part of something bigger. And I thank you, God, that, um, that you truly have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And Lord, I just pray that, uh, that the enemy would not steal any uh, seeds of encouragement or hope that you want to give your people here this morning. God, I thank you that um, in our imperfections, you are perfect. I thank you, God, that you actually see us um, as perfect, Father, that you, um, because of the right Christ righteousness that we've been clothed with, that, um, that we will never be judged because Christ was judged. And Lord, I just pray that those beautiful gospel truths would compel us, would motivate us to uh, work out by your strength and by your grace, which you have already worked into us. So God, we're eternally grateful. Uh, May you be pleased by the sacrifice of our lives and the meditations of our heart. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.